This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And my guest in the studio today is Thomas Garza, who is a professor in the Department of Slavic and Eurasian Studies and director of the Texas Language Center here on campus. Hi, Tom. Chris, I'm delighted to be here, getting any chance I can to talk about one of my favorite subjects. One of your favorite topics, and I should mention that this is the second in our supernatural, yet still historical, themed uh, series for October. Uh, And we're going to be talking about the Slavic Vampire. So I have to start off with the postmodern political correct question of why is it important that the vampire is Slavic? Because, Chris, the vampire is Slavic. My concern always has been that for most Western audiences, the vampire begins with Bram Stoker in 1897 and his Dracula. And while that was a seminal moment in creating the next step of that great cultural historic myth of the vampire, it was far from the first. And indeed, if one takes actually the origin of the word itself, the word that we now use, vampire, take it back to its vampir, to its upir beginnings, it's a Russian Slavic common Slavic word from the 11th century, no less. From the 11th century. First okay. written documentation. So take us back to the 11th century. How does this show up? Is it a fairy tale? Is it a myth? I, of course, am going again on the postmodernist assumption that vampires don't exist. Well, as my wife once said in an interview, and I've now quoted this repeatedly, she was asked the question, so do you believe in vampires? Do vampires exist? And she replied, I don't believe that they necessarily do not exist. That's a, that's a wonderful answer it's to that question. It's a terrific answer. <laughs> okay, so 11th century, in what yeah. context does the vampire... So the 11th century, Mark, 1047 to be exact, is the first written... Uh, a phenomenon of the word upir in print in a, in a Russian primary chronicle. So the vampire itself as phenomenon, cultural feature, was around centuries before this. And usually, as it was in most other cultures, including Eastern cultures, um, from Turkey into the Balkans and all the story, evolves as part of folk mythology of what we want to blame when things go badly wrong. So if a crop fails, the vampire did it. If your child should die in its sleep, crib death, the vampire did it. Um, If there's a plague, it's vampires. It became the uh, ideal form of cultural othering at a time before, way before we even had that term available to us to know what it means to scapegoat someone. So the vampire comes in very early on, first as a cultural idea, and then eventually, once it gets into a written form, becomes now a historical figure from that point on. So were there certain groups of people who were identified as, would the term suspected vampires be appropriate here? I mean, since you brought in the Mm -hmm. idea of othering, usually Mm -hmm. that's an outside group. My mind goes immediately to the Roma, commonly known as gypsies, but the appropriate term is Roma. But I'm sure there were others. The Roma are one of the very, very first. And why is a good story in itself? Because the story, the vampire story itself, the vampire mythos, enters into the Slavic world via the Roma people, coming in from northern India, across Turkey, and then up the Balkan Peninsula to what used to be Yugoslavia, the South Slavic lands. Right. The story there becomes one of the Indian goddess Kali, and indeed the first vampire stories were all about women, hmm. female vampires. 
the kind of harpy figure that we now commonly get, the winged creature with fangs that feeds primarily on men, uh, usually as a story of unrequited love or a story of a jilted past. That story coming in through the Roma population then filters its way up through the Balkans, Central Europe, and then finally into Russia, where it becomes kind of its own its own thing. And men and women both get this moniker of vampire by the time we reach the Middle Ages. So how does the mythos evolve? I mean, today, vampires have taken on a certain... I hate to say romantic mythos uh, due to certain representations in in popular culture sparkling. Uh, Vampires do not sparkle. I'm sorry. Vampires do not sparkle. No. Uh, Or, you know, the genteel southern vampire or all of these other, you know, true blood, twilight sort of representations we have. And that's a far cry from what you're describing as, you know, uh, this creature that causes crops to fail and and infants to, to perish in their cribs. So how does the story change over time? So the story ultimately having been a blood myth to begin with. Kali is a, is a goddess of, uh, of a bloodlust, basically, that can, may cause death, uh, depending on your own. This, again, goes now into a question of karma and all, but that's a whole nother lecture. Um, the, the story, once coming into the Balkans, does indeed then become this story of uh, a life after death story. That is, one who becomes a vampire, usually for reasons of uh, heresy, uh, being in, uh, an infidel of so- any kind, whether it's in your personal life to your spouse or to your country, basically gives this sense that the bad, uh, the bad means by which you're living will be paid back for in the next life. And so at death, your body becomes now the undead. Now, the cold question of where the drinking of blood comes from and all does come much, much later, actually, because the word itself, the the etymological form vampire, literally means to drink up or to drink out of. Hmm. But it isn't specific to blood. It can be in its original form, in fact, was, as we talked about with bad crop failure or um, infant death, it can be the pulling of energy, the life force out of a person. It ultimately goes back to Ecclesiastes, I'm afraid, with the blood is the life. And so when um, Christianity comes to this region in the 9th century, the Balkan region in the 9th century, and 10th century to Russia, the story now, the life is the blood, the blood is the life, now becomes what it is that the vampire drinks out in order to sustain his or her own life. That's an ancient idea, even that that life and blood go hand go in hand. hand. I mean, you know, the the Roman emperors, the 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 Maya kings, the ancient Egyptian pharaohs. You know, any sacrifice all had to involve blood and life force. You had to give your life force in order for the gods to give you something back. So, Absolutely. So it, it is sort of a primeval thing. When does this this fear aspect of the idea that these are creatures lurking in the night is that? Coming in here? Does it come in later? I, I think we're talking about exactly this time, around around the medieval period. So the two historical figures that give historical credence to this myth of the vampire, the idea that, okay, you may have done something bad in your life, you're now going to come back as a vampire, you do get eternal life, but only in this undead state. And in order to sustain your life, you must take the lives of others. To do that, so it's not as you say this this glamorous afterlife that we now look at in True Blood and, and Twilight. However, what really gives, as I say, historical credence to the myth is 15th and 16th century historical figures, Vlad Dracula, 
the real life ruler of Transylvania, Wallachia more specifically, and a successor, a hundred years later, Elizabeth Bathory of Hungary, both of whom demonstrated in their lives very strong ruling capacity. That is, they were good military leaders. They were strong ruler, ruling figures, but they both had these strange, uh, lightly called bloodlusts. Vlad the Impaler Dracula had a penchant for taking his uh, the Muslim Turk enemy coming into the land of the Slavs uh, and putting them onto wooden stakes, impaling them to frighten off others. And this tactic seemed indeed to have worked because that part of Romania, Transylvania, never was occupied by the Turks during, uh, uh, during the invasions of the 14th, 15th century. Elizabeth Bathory of Hungary, same thing. Her particular bent was uh, uh, the discovery that human blood, especially from these young girl servants that she had, would make her skin remain soft, supple, and apparently young. And she took on the habit of draining the blood from these young girls and then bathing in it to stay young looking. So these two stories in particular, uh, as I said, truly late medieval period, now give a historic, historical credence to the fact that these are indeed evil entities. And the word vampire was attributed to both of them, to both Vlad Dracula, obviously this is where Bram Stoker ultimately will get his idea for the name of his character, and Elizabeth Bathory, the female vampire. Okay, so we have these two historical figures. Right. Were their legacies necessarily recognized at the time, or were they just inspirations later? I know, for example, Vlad Tsepesh, the Impaler, was allegedly the uh, the inspiration for Dracula, mm-hmm. if in it possibly in name, but you know, it was it was definitely something Bram Stoker had in mind. Was this something that was carried around locally, or did he do some research on this and and? pull a story out of somewhere and, and invent this in the 19th century. I mean, Stoker famously researches the idea of this creature, let's call it, the character figure that's going to be, that's to represent in the late 19th century British context. Think of this in terms of 1890s London area, lots of new emigrants coming into the city, indeed often being uh, purposely or not blamed for whatever ills were coming into, into Britain at the same time, and wants to create this object of evil that would be his own symbol for the other. And he plays around with a number of variants. Would it be a Jewish looking or Jewish character? Uh, Would it be simply a foreigner who comes in to England? And ultimately winds up in the British Library looking through travel logs of people from the same period to try to determine what area he might have this creature come from, and comes across travel logs from British travelers through the area of uh, the Balkans, and indeed comes on to the story of Vlad Sepesh Dracula. First of all, he loves the name. He'd been toying with several other names for the creature and likes the name Dracula. It's still in the notes in his own writing, Dracula, this is it. You know, mm-hmm. he underlines it twice to say, I've, I found it. But he also likes this idea of the region and hooks on to it that Dracula should be this Eastern European other that comes in. And he will speak with the accent. He will uh, look the part. Indeed, he makes him into a kind of caricature almost of what an East European Jew would have looked like. The description of Dracula in the text is, we'll talk about the aquiline nose, we'll talk about the features of the high forehead and so forth. He really wants to convey upon the reader, this is not one of us people, this is someone else in creating that character. Now, more specific to your question, though, I think, is that's Bram Stoker's take on why that historical figure becomes his reimagined version of the vampire in 1897. 
the actual character, interestingly, becomes a kind of Robin Hood character in uh, Romania. To oh, present day, to present day, you'll get Vlad Dracula was the Christian crusader of Romania. And sure, we're talking about 15th century, but nonetheless, to present day, Romania remains a Christian nation because of, even through communism, because of the things Dracula did. Albeit they immoral, illegal. Uh, he uh, did what he had to he do. He did what he had to do. And look at who we are today. Interesting. Um, so I have to ask if, if Elisabetta managed to hold on to her reputation as well. She does not. Okay. In Hungary, unfortunately, uh, she is fairly routinely and, and roundly uh, trashed, both in the popular literature and in the scholarly literature, as being uh, a good leader, but only because her husband, Ferenc, had been such a good leader before her, that she learned all her military prowess from him, and that because what she did was so, probably because she was a woman, was so unthinkable, it gave a bad, an entire bad reputation to the throne. Uh, in general. And so she's l largely regarded as a, a blip of history that they would rather forget. Well, since you've hit on this point, I just have to ask out of curiosity. Um, in pre-modern societies, the demonizing or the erasing of a strong female leader yes. is relatively well known. Do we know for certain that she actually did these things? Or was this, there some possibility this was something attributed to her after her demise? I'll, I'll allow for, there's always a possibility. Okay. The good news here for, for historical purposes is that wonderfully specific records were kept during this time. That that hundred years difference between Vlad Dracula and Elizabeth Batari really makes a difference in terms of the historical records. So what were the records kept? Uh, a, a number of the court documents during her trial were kept, which had testimony to present day, which we have in in late medieval Hungarian, but nonetheless still still intact, that we right. can get the testimony of some of the young women who had gone to the castle but had managed to get away and live to be able to tell their story. The other incredible document is that of her manservant. Elizabeth had a confidant who was with her all the time and would have been witness to everything. Now, the question would be always, what was his stake in telling the true story of Batari? So his diaries, his journals are incredibly detailed in what she did, what she said, to whom at what time, the numbers, and so forth. So much of what we report now as the truth about Elizabeth Batari is actually her manservant's uh, journals. So you, you raise that question of kind of reasonable doubt. Is there a possibility? Of course. He may have wanted it in for her. Again, a man servant to a woman leader, he certainly would have it in him, perhaps, to be able to say things or write things down that would uh, uh, defame her later. Right. Um, okay, so the vampire starts as a sort of scapegoat for natural forces, right. sort of a, a cultural construct to explain the unknowable. Um, and we've sort of morphed through this period in which uh, there are two historical figures who sort of, for better or for worse, get attributed to this sort of thing. What is the, if you'll pardon the pun, afterlife of the vampire mythos in Eastern Europe? Good news here is that the vampire story has indeed taken on a life of its own, and not to be uh, too punful about it all, um, largely, I think, because of Bram Stoker. So once the story of Dracula is put out as a, an Eastern European story, albeit set in London, uh, or, or set, I should say, in, in England. It actually is mostly in Whitby that the, the action takes place. But 
that it is an, an East European character. There's sort of a renewal in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, an interest in this character, both in Eastern Europe and in Russia proper, so that new stories begin to appear. Actually, I should say new versions of old stories begin to appear. And as we enter into um, uh, the late 19th century Russian period, as well as in the Balkans, you'll see the great writers, writers like Tolstoy. This is the cousin of Leo Tolstoy. This is Alexei Tolstoy. Writers like Turgenev, uh, fathers and son fame. Uh, even early on, Pushkin, all writing stories about vampires in a literary form, in a literary context, not a folklore, but a real folkloric, but a real literary context instead. So the story gets its life back in the 19th century, and it continues through the 20th century with vigor. Even through the period of communism in the Soviet period, there are still a number of directors who do films about vampires and writers who write stories about them, including Bulgakov, one of my favorite writers in the Stalin period in the 1930s. What it, what was the reaction of the church to these stories, uh, especially to leaders like Vlad, who is you know now held up as a a pillar of Christianity? Right. Um, wow. The relationship between the church and this myth is complicated. Complicated. All right. And fascinating. And it's, it's actually the linchpin for the course that I teach on the subject. It actually is the relationship between religion, especially Christianity. Although the story itself has affinities in Islam, in, certainly in Judaism, where uh, the vampire figure, probably the very first vamp vampiric figure, Lilith, the first uh, wife yes. of, of Adam, appears. But what exactly, how exactly do these two come together in the Slavic world again? So you've got a history of paganism, you've got a history of kind of long, hundred centuries old tradition of the folk story of the vampire. And suddenly in the you know, late 9th, early 10th century, we get Christianity being laid thickly over the Balkans, being laid on top of new Russia, having chosen Christianity, uh, Vladimir, uh, the czar at the time, choosing purposely Christianity over Judaism and over Islam. Uh, trying to now come to terms with the new tenets of Christianity against the backdrop of all these very deeply ingrained pagan beliefs. So now think about it, as I beg my class to do. What does vampirism involve? Resurrection from the dead, the drinking of blood, sometimes the eating of body, in order to pass on that new life. And suddenly students start to see, you see the kind of, sometimes it's a sparkle, sometimes it's a look of disdain, but they come to the conclusion, some basic tenets of the story are strangely char you know, characteristic, this kind of Christ as vampire symbol of vampirism being explained through Christianity. And indeed, what went on for several hundred years, we do know, and to some extent to present day, this dualism, duality of religions, a kind of peaceful coexistence of paganism with Christianity layered on top of it is really what ruled Russia for so many centuries. I, I always can ask my students to think about things like Easter celebrations in this country, even in, in the West, in the U.S. Is Christians do, of course, see it as the period of rebirth of Christ. They uh, go to church, they see the crucifix, but they also put out Easter eggs, and there's an Easter bunny, and there's all the little pagan trappings of rebirth and renewal, and right. the spring, the whole uh, uh, vernal equinox celebration. 
this same kind of duality occurs in the Slavic lands as well and occurred very heavily for that period from about the 11th century until about the 16th, 17th century when then the Christian stories start to really take precedence over the folkloric stories. But nonetheless, you can see how the two would, in a sense, complement one each other very nicely. Absolutely. Well, what changes in, in this at that period in the 16th, 17th century? Is it the advent of printing, the increase in literacy? Well, it's very interesting because the Age of Reason, you know, sort of sweeping across Europe in the 17th century, really does, uh, and by the 18th century, really taking hold in the West, in Western Europe, really does give, in a sense, rational reasons for so many of the things that people thought were simply going bump in the night. So tuberculosis now has a cause. The Black Plague has a cause. We now know what that is. We know why crops fail. Um, we more or less have understood now even why sudden infant death is occurring. It's, there, there's now more science, more historical um, uh, uh, overview of events that people can explain things away. And nonetheless, this particular period, late 16th, early, uh, sorry, late 17th, early 18th century, is known as the period of the vampire epidemic throughout Europe. It seemed that the more religion kept telling us there's a reason for all of this to happen, that you're not seeing vampires, you're not seeing werewolves. These are real events with real explanations that happened to them. The more people wanted to come up with reasons to keep the vampire, no pun intended again, to keep the vampire alive. So during this same period, as the Age of Reason happens, we also have a tuberculosis outbreak, the pandemic of tuberculosis. There's one of cholera as well in the southern regions of the Balkans. What are these, what are the physical attributes that go on here? Coughing up of blood, a look of pallor, it's passed from one person on to another. It appears, yes, that vampires are still among us. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. But, Tom, as always, it is fascinating to talk with you about this subject. Thank Chris, you for this was my pleasure. This is my pleasure. Enjoyed it. This has been another episode of 15-Minute History. We'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas. Texas, or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.